I would ask you once more to turn in your Bibles to the fifth chapter of the book of Jeremiah. We've read in our service this evening the first 18 verses, the first 19 verses of Jeremiah chapter 5. And like much of the material we find in the first 25 chapters, it's nothing that will cause us to kick up our heels or to dance a gospel jig or to throw up our hands in celebration and praise for just the wonderful things that God will have, will do. Um, this is a tale of devastation. It's a tale of destruction. It's a tale of death, or near death anyway. It's a tale of judgment that God will bring upon an apostate people, an idolatrous people, a rebellious people, a treacherous people. Those are just some of the words that are used to describe Judah and to describe Jerusalem in the book of Jeremiah. And if you think it gets any prettier, uh, the first couple of verses, or at least particularly verse 1, I think makes it clear that the way in which Isaiah looked upon the city of Jerusalem, calling it Sodom, calling it Gomorrah. Remember that in chapter 1 of the book of Isaiah? Uh, just turn there. Just get that in your in your minds. We're in chapter one of the book of Isaiah, in verse ten, um, Isaiah, in addressing uh, Judah and Jerusalem, says, "Hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah." Um, these cities of the plains were destroyed by God for their wickedness. And remember that there couldn't even be found ten people in the city who were not relatives of Abraham. Again, Abraham was concerned about his relatives, Lot and his family, and pled with God, interceded with God. What if there are 50 righteous people? Will you still destroy the city? And brought it all the way down to ten. And besides Lot's family that he sent an angel to bring out of Sodom, there were not ten people to be found that would spare the city. God would have spared it for the sake of ten righteous people. Here in Jerusalem now, God does something similar. I know it sounds like this is Diogenes searching around to look for an honest man, but this is God sending out emissaries, sending out Jeremiah and others, to run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, to look and to take note, to search her squares, go through the city streets, go through the city squares, to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth. And the whole end of it is that I may pardon her, that I may pardon her. God is looking for a reason to pardon Judah, to pardon Jerusalem to not bring judgment upon this sinful people. And even if they could find one man who does justice, who seeks truth, pardon would come. Now, again, I think it's a bit of hyperbole that uh, there, I mean, there was Jeremiah and Baruch, at least, in the city. We know that. And uh, there were some righteous people that were uh, supportive of Jeremiah, that were on his side, that delivered him from difficulties that he came upon later. But yet, it was such a rarity to find anybody 
that any concern to serve the Lord, any concern to walk in his ways, any concern to seek after justice and to seek after truth, that you can search the city for days and probably not walk into anybody that would fit that description. And so God desires to pardon her. Yeah, we see the picture of the judgment that God brings. And I think we need to always remember that God is reluctant to bring judgment. I think it's what uh, Isaiah calls his strange work. His strange work. That it's never said to us in, in the Bible that God delights in wrath. It's never said in the Bible that God delights to bring just judgment upon the wicked. His delight is mercy. Again and again and again, we're told that his delight is to show mercy. But yet there is this strange work that God does because he's God. That he does because sin is what sin is, and God is who God is. And though he desires to pardon her, will look for any reason not to bring this judgment, yet the reality is the situation is just that bad. Though they say, as the Lord lives, they go around all the time talking about Yahweh, talking about Israel's God, swearing by his name, as Yahweh lives, you can trust my words, as Yahweh lives, I'm being honest with you, or not, not, no, God who knows the heart, knows the reality, knows yet they swear falsely, we're told. And then, you know, you have in this picture, you have not only these expressions, you know, hyperbole, hyperbole. I've read something that I thought was, was good on just the subject of the way in which Jeremiah presents his teaching. This is hard teaching. It's difficult teaching. It's unrelieved uh, in terms of its severity. I mean, we're really reading literature that's going to talk to us about disaster and death and destruction and the consuming of, of, of sons and daughters and the consuming of flocks and herds and the consuming of the, the, the vine and, 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 and the fig trees. And uh, the land lays waste. It's a decreation, as you saw in chapter 4. Everything returning to being without form and void. The whole picture of darkness again upon the face of the deep. It's uninhabitable. Um, and one writer says, just in terms of the way this is presented to us, this literature that's so filled with pathos, it's so filled with that which would bring us to be filled with tears and uh, just the extraordinary severity of what God brings in terms of his justice. This writer says it's also an extraordinary piece of ancient Hebrew rhetoric. It's one of the finest in the book, this very chapter that we're looking at. He speaks about the use of repetition and metaphor and wordplay and rhetorical questions um, hyperbole, I mentioned that already. We'll see some of these other ones. Irony, uh, soliloquy, that's Jeremiah talking to himself and giving answers. Um, deep pathos and argument. Seldom does so much appear in so few lines. So there's a sense in which, though this is solemn stuff, though this is 
the stuff of tear jerkers, you know, I'm trying to think of a word that expresses it. It's not coming to me. But it's also something that's filled with beauty. It's solemn and it's also beautiful, the way that it is expressed. Because though there, there is severity here, there's also hope here. In the midst of the harshness of God's prophesied destruction and the reality of the destruction that is brought against this city, God's not doing it willingly. Something that's said in the book of Lamentations, he does not afflict willingly. In that expression, willingly, he does not afflict from the heart. I think you might say his hand is against the nation, but his heart is for them. He's reluctant to bring this judgment, but yet he would not be God. He would not be just. He would not be a God of moral perfection if he just looked the other way. Shall I not punish them for these things? Verse 9 declares the Lord. This is a refrain. Mises later in verse 29. Shall I not punish them for these things? Declares Yahweh. And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? He has to. It's absolutely mandatory for God to uphold the dignity of his own majesty and justice and his own integrity of his own attributes that he cannot allow this just to go on without intervening in the way of severity of judgment. But even in the midst of that, he has not ceased to be. God is still the living God. God is still the God who loves this nation. And God is still the God who has a future for this nation. And you're going to see that even in the judgment that he brings, it's not a judgment of total destruction. It's a judgment that's measured. It's a judgment that's proportional to their, 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 their actions. And it's a judgment that's going to send them into Babylon with a hope for the future. And so even in the midst of our worst times, the greatest hardships, the greatest afflictions, the greatest suffering, we're called upon to experience, just like Israel of old, it's not easy. It's devastating. It's shocking. It's, it's traumatic. And yet it's also suffused with hope. Because God is who he is, not only in terms of justice, but in terms of mercy, in terms of grace, in terms of love, in terms of the fact that he is the living God, he is the loving God, and he is the God who has a plan and a purpose and a future for all who trust in his name. So this, emissary, this group of emissaries are sent out into the city to find justice, to find people that would bring the devastation from not occurring, that they might be pardoned. And yet you have these people that swear falsely by the name of the Lord. And Jeremiah then, in prayer, says, O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth. You have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You have consumed them, but they refused to take correction. I'm pausing here because um, I don't know if you know something about my history with respect to uh, something that's called a um, optic migraine. Um, I haven't had one for a while, but I think I'm starting to develop one. And that simply means my field of vision gets distorted 
for about 20 minutes, and then that's usually followed by a headache. As I'm standing here reading, I'm seeing everything just kind of, I call it just get pixelated, you know, sometimes when you look at it on a screen, when everything just goes haywire. And that's what's occurring right now. But I'm going to do my best to work my way through it. This is nothing that's... Uh, you know, I'm not going blind or anything like that. It's just something that is going to pass just with uh, with time. But I just want you to realize that uh, I'm going to have a little bit of problem reading this as a result of that. Um, but the point of it is that God has already come with severity of discipline to this nation. Again, remember the curses that of the covenant that we read about in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and also in Leviticus um, chapter 26 where the curses of the covenant, they get increasingly severe. And it's the, it's the final uh, curse that's exile, that God is actually going to uproot them from the land and send them away into foreign nations. And that has not yet occurred at this point in the book of Jeremiah. And God has come and brought other means of discipline. God has come and he's chastened them in a variety of ways. You remember back again in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1. Um, Isaiah speaks of how God chastened the people uh, for their sins. He met uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, the spiritual Sodom and Gomorrah, um, with chastisement. You look at verse 4 of Isaiah 1. A sinful nation, people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They've forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They're utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint from the sole of the foot, even to the head. There's no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They're not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. What's God saying? He's saying, I beat them. I beat them like he beat a disobedient child. And I beat them to the top of their head, to the soles of their feet. And yet the fool does not receive correction. Israel would not receive correction. This is a foolish nation. This is a nation that's not living or walking in the fear of God. And so, though this discipline came, it was not heeded. As Jeremiah says, You've struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You've consumed them. They refused to take correction. Instead of melting the discipline of the Lord, instead of being teachable in face of the discipline of the Lord, it says they've made their faces harder than rock. They've refused to repent. We will not repent. We will not turn back to God. Regardless of what God brings, we refuse to repent. That's the scene that they find. That's the report that comes back. Lord, we went out through the city. Then we find those that do justice, who seek truth. Then we find those that swore falsely. We found those who will not receive correction. We found those that refuse to repent. Jeremiah hears the report. And then he has this little soliloquy within himself, within his own heart. Speaking to himself. Then I said, and it wasn't, uh, maybe he said it to the Lord, but probably he just said it to himself. These are only the poor. This is the hoi polloi. 
This is the unwashed multitude. These are the nobodies. They have no sense. They're not really leaders in religion. They're not great theologians. They haven't graduated from seminaries. They've not been set apart to serve in the tap, tap, the, 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 in, in the temple. They're not of the priestly caste. They're not of the prophetic caste. They're not of it. They're nobodies. This is a bunch of nobodies. It's interesting how in the New Covenant, God says that's just the people he chooses. <laughs> he calls the nobodies. He calls the unwashed. He calls the people who the world deems to be nobodies and foolish and makes them to be his own people. So nobodies who have nothing can yet have the grace of God, can fear the Lord. Um, James speaks of those who are poorest to the things of this world who are rich in faith and heirs to the promises. And there are those that are filthy rich whose hearts are yet wayward and rebellious. Well, Jeremiah is mistaken to think. It's just a question of their outward condition. Whether they have sufficient education, whether they have sufficient money in their pocket, whether they have sufficient position. All those things really don't matter. That's what he goes on later in chapter 9. He says, let not the, the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the rich man glory in his wealth. Not, not the powerful man glory in his power. But let him who glories, glories in this, that he knows me. The, 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 the only true God. But the poor, he thinks, well, they don't know the way of the Lord. They've not been taught and instructed and guided well. Uh, they don't know the justice of their God. So here's what I'll do. I'm, I'm another plan. Uh, they've gone through the streets. They've gone through the squares. They've gone through the different places in the city looking for a, 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 a truth seeker, a justice doer. Um, well, you're not going to find it among the poor. So, you know, Jeremiah, who stood before kings and prophesied to kings, he says, I'll go to the great. I'm a priest. I'll go to the priestly caste. I'll go to the great ones in Jerusalem, the wealthy ones, the wise ones, the ones with great reputations, and I will speak to them. I'll find out for them, for they know the way of Yahweh. They know the justice of their God. And whether you go out into the streets, in the squares, among the nobodies, whether you go into the palaces of kings and in the temples of the priests, you find out one thing they're all alike (laughs) they're all alike they're all rebels they've broken the yoke they will not be uh, they will not have Yahweh to reign over them they will not have this God to govern them and to guide them they've burst the bonds so from great ones to small ones to people with great reputations to nobodies Rebellion is the order of the day. That's what you find in the city. Therefore, destruction will come. Therefore, it's described in terms of uh, these wild beasts that come to devour and strike down and devastate. You have three of these wild beasts, the lion, the wolf, and the leopard. Therefore, a lion from the forest shall strike them down. A wolf from the desert shall devastate them. A leopard is watching their cities. Everyone who goes out of them shall be torn in pieces because their transgressions are many, their apostasies 
are great. I rather think that when he speaks of these um, wild beasts, at least certainly the lion is often in the scriptures speaking about empire, speaking about great nations who will ravage and 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 and, and consume everything in their path as a, as a wild beast would, as a lion would. So it's probably speaking largely about the Babylonians and anyone they're in cahoots with they're going to come and serve them and come and bring destruction to Jerusalem the lion from the forest the wolf from the desert maybe Egypt, I don't know maybe something from across the Jordan who knows Uh, the leopard going to just uh, with great speed and uh, swiftness uh, just jump upon them. He's watching, watching the city, watching everyone he can uh, consume and devour. And anyone that he, he could tear into pieces. And in the midst of that devastation, the people need to remember this is not without cause. God bringing these nations upon them, it's not without cause. There is a because here, there is a reason. Again, the people are going to say, why has the Lord, our God, done all these things to us? In verse 19. But the answer is clear. Verse 19 says, as you've forsaken me, serve foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve foreigners in a land that is not your own. That's verse 19. And then verse 6 says, because their transgressions are many, their apostasies are great. And God asks, can you see how it moves from Jeremiah speaking and a little soliloquy? Um, now God speaks to the, how can I pardon you? How can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me. They've sworn by those who are no gods. They're idols. They're empty nothings. And I'm, I'm thankful I've been able to get this far. But man, oh man, this... Uh, pausing here just to say this pixelated stuff is like well it's a light show I'm looking at it's really really something but uh, you know, a lot of times I sit back and enjoy this when it occurs but it, again it usually is a 20 minute thing and then my vision is fully restored but it is quite uh, quite intense just at this point but uh, back to the text back to the text um They've sworn by those that are no gods, this empty no nothings, uh, that cannot hear their prayers and cannot do them good and, or evil. Uh, these gods are, are, don't, are, have no objective existence. They are not real. They're a lie. They're a delusion of the hearts of those who worship them. And God is the God who supplied the needs of his people. God is the God who met them and redeemed them and blessed them and did them good. So God then says, when I fed them to the full, these, are, these things they worship can't give them anything, feeding them to the full. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery. And it might be spiritual adultery that's spoken here. They lost sight of where their mercies came from. They lost sight of the God who gave them the benefits that they received so freely. They committed adultery. They trooped to the houses of horrors, maybe the temples of these false gods. Now, some people think it's language is such that it's literal adultery. He's talking about literally sexual sins. But I rather think it's really just speaking about uh, spiritual adultery, their idolatry, their visiting the temples of false gods, 
And then just the unrestrained passion they had for these idols. They were well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing for his neighbor's wife. A very graphic picture of just someone, an animal in heat, is basically what's being said. Running after these gods that could never satisfy them, could never do them good, could never meet their needs to the full. And then the Lord says, shall I not punish them for these things? Shall I just turn a blind eye? Shall I just sweep it all under the rug? Shall I just forget that any of this ever occurred? Can God be God and not bring judgment upon a rebellious people of whom he said, if you forsake my words and you walk in these ways, I will bring these judgments? Shall he then say, no, not now or maybe never? No, God must bring judgment upon them. And so the first venture into the city, sending out messengers for the purposes of finding justice doers and finding truth seekers, um, that failed. And so now there's another uh, foray into the land, into the city. Um, And now the picture is the city as a vine or the nation as a vine. It's again a metaphor that speaks of Israel as a nation. God planted a vineyard. The vineyard is his people. And he says to go through her vine rows and destroy. Go tear down the vineyard. Remember back in Isaiah chapter 5, the Lord speaks about how he planted a vineyard and everything well with it. And he looked for fruit, and they brought forth wild grapes and not the proper fruit. And, and God just says, plow under the vineyard. Just destroy it. God's going to destroy the vineyard. Well, that's the picture here. Go through her vine rows and destroy, but not make a full end. Not make a full end. Remember, the vineyards of the nation, vineyard owners in the nation, could not just go and bring in the fruit of the vine and make a full end of taking it all into their own barns or into their own houses or to use for their own purposes. Um, there had to be those aspects of the vineyards that which there were droppings of the grapes that was to not be picked up. Don't go back and take it. Leave it. And it was left for the poor. It was left for the alien. It was left for the widows and the orphans. Look at the law of the keeping of vineyards in Deuteronomy chapter 24. There's one also in the book of Leviticus, I think it's 19. But here in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 19, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that Yahweh your God may bless you in the work of your hands. And when you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. Not be a full stripping of everything. You can't take it all for yourself. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And you shall remember, you were a slave in the land of Egypt, therefore I command you to do this. So when God destroys his vineyard, he has to keep his own law. (laughs) So he's not going to destroy everything. 
It's not going to be total destruction and total devastation. Uh, God's going to be bound to the Torah. He's going to be bound to the law of Moses, just even in the way that he executes his judgment against her. Don't make a full end. Strip away her branches, for they are not Yahweh's, but leave the gleanings. There's stuff still to be left. There's stuff still to be not taken away. And then he says, For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have been utterly treacherous to me. They've spoken falsely of Yahweh. They have said, He will do nothing. He will do nothing. They mocked him. They actually mocked him. Again, these were the scoffers who just said, Where's God? Where's his threats? Where's his judgment? He said he's going to bring judgment upon us, but eh, nothing big. Nothing to really write home about. Nothing we can't endure. We're getting wealthy in the progress of our our lives. And we're happy and we're content. So where's this destruction, Jeremiah? Peace, peace, when there is no peace. That was the message of their false prophets. He'll do nothing to us. No disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see the sword, nor shall we see famine. Those are the threats of the book of Deuteronomy, that God would bring the sword, God would bring famine. Then Jeremiah, or the Lord, it's hard to know, says, the prophets will become wind. That is, they're long-winded prophets who speak words that are empty words. You know, I... uh, God's word is like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. It's like fire that consumes. The words of these prophets is just wind. It's, it's, not, it's not of the spirit. It's just of a wind. A wind. The word is not in them. Thus shall it be done to them. They're, they're decrying peace, peace, when there is no peace. That's not going to be what occurs. What God says will be what occurs. And then in the face of this mockery, in the face of disdaining the very word of God, the very covenant threats that the law of God made to Israel, the Lord then says, because you've spoken this word, these words of mockery, these words of flagrant disregard for the judgments God said will come, and you said it will not come there will be no disaster there will be no sword there will be no famine because you've spoken this word this empty word this word of wind this word that has no real power at all God says to Jeremiah behold I'm making my words in your mouth a fire and the people will be wood (laughs) can I make the people wood your words a fire and the fire shall consume them. I mean, what is, what is wood to the fire? It's just fuel. It's not going to withstand the word of God. God's word is going to overcome them. God's word is going to consume them. God's word is going to be fulfilled on them, even if they disregard it and ignore it and defy it and deny it. It doesn't hinder God's word from coming. People could say, till they're blue in the face, no day of judgment. People could say to the blue in the face, God can do nothing to me. I'll, I'm my own master, master of my captain of my soul, the master of my own fate. Doesn't make it true. It's just empty words. God's word is not empty. God's word is fire that consumes. 
the wood. Then the Lord says to the nation, Behold, I'm bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel, this enduring nation, this ancient nation, this nation whose language you do not know. Again, it's Babylon. And the references to the Tower of Babel when the language was confused and people couldn't understand one another. This is a foreign nation, but an ancient nation. And um, you won't understand what they say, but you'll see what they'll do. They will come as mighty warriors. They will have a quiver like an open tomb, an endless supply of war material that will come against you, arrows that will pierce you, swords that will pierce you. They shall eat up your harvest and your food. Four consuming actions, four actions of eating up everything that belonged to the people. Their harvest and their food, their sons and their daughters, their flocks and their herds, their vine and their fig trees will all be eaten up, all be consumed by the Babylonian invasion. Your fortified cities in which you trust, they shall beat down with the sword. But here's the comfort, even in those days, the days of invasion, the days of disaster, the days of devastation, the days of trauma, the days of things, if we experience it, folks, we would simply be filled with shock that would render us incapable. I mean, it's like being in an earthquake and seeing thousands of people die. That's what these people experienced when the Babylonian armies came and took them away. They saw death and they saw destruction. But even in those days, I will not make a full end of you. God has a purpose. God has a plan. God has a hope. God is still the living God. God is still the loving God. God is still the God who reluctantly brought this judgment upon them and would have found a reason not to do it if only there were some righteous folks that would seek him and pray to him. But the the apostasy was so pervasive that he had to bring this and because his own integrity made it absolutely necessary that this judgment would come. And when your people say, why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? You shall say to them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve foreigners in a land that is not yours. Well, just in brief conclusion, I mean, I've said a lot of this along the way, but I'll just say just in conclusion, we see something here of the heart of God. The hand of God was severe against them, but the heart of God was reluctant to punish, willing to forgive, desirous of their repentance, having no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn. And the heart of God had hope for the people's future. Again, we're not going to see that fully here in the opening 25 chapters, because that's largely devoted to the destruction of the nation and all of the things they trusted in that was not Yahweh. But yet when we come into the later chapters, you have chapter upon chapter of what's often called the book of consolation. There's the book that speaks of hope. There's the letter that Jeremiah wrote to the exiles that spoke of the hope and spoke of the new covenant and spoke of the blessings that God designs to bring upon this nation. 
So again, even when the hand of God seems ever so heavy, don't judge the heart of God by his hand. He does not afflict from the heart. But then along with those aspects of God's character, there's also the fact that when his judgment does fall, it's measured. It's measured. It's proportional to what they've done. It's what they deserve. You know, there might seem to be chaos in the land. The land returning to being without form and void. But moral chaos, there's no moral chaos. God operates in pure justice in doing what he does. And so it's predictable. The people should have known. Devastation would come. God warned them in advance. It's there in Deuteronomy 28. It's there in Leviticus chapter 26. And God will bring his judgment. But even in those chapters... He tells them, when you're in that foreign land and you turn to me and you repent, I will restore you. I will restore you. God is the God of generous restoration. The nation was perverse in their wickedness and in their rebellion and their apostasy and their idolatry. They were perverse in not receiving God's correction when he sent them again and again and again But God is pure in his dealings with this nation. You see, the the perversity of of Jerusalem, you see the failure of their leaders. You know, it's funny, Jeremiah could say, well, it's the poor. What do you expect? But you know, those poor ought to have been taught by the rich and the powerful and the learned and the well-instructed. They should have taught right things. They should have educated the people in God's ways, but they didn't know God's ways. That was the problem. You see, this whole idea of looking down our noses at the poor. We have a work to do for the poor, to minister to the poor, not just in terms of monetary help and food and necessities, but also to be teaching the poor. That's what Jesus said when in the synagogue of Nazareth when he read Isaiah chapter 61. He's come to heal the brokenhearted. He's come to release the captives. And he's come to what? Preach the gospel to the poor. He's come to preach the gospel to the poor. He's come to bring God's word to the poor. And to build them up in truth and in faith and in faithfulness. It's a beautiful passage in one sense. It's a very difficult passage in another sense. It's filled with beauty but also filled with harsh realities of sin and of judgment. But yet in the midst of it all, God is. He lives. He loves. And he has purposes of ultimate good for all who look to him in faith. I hope that's an encouraging word. I hope that is for us all a very encouraging word. Let's look to the Lord. My optic migraine seems to be gone. I'm seeing everybody clearly once again. That's the first time it ever happened to me preaching. That's happened to me when I've been driving a car or driving a taxi one time, coming back from Florida one time that occurred. 
It's usually followed by a massive headache, but so far I don't have a massive headache, but that may be forthcoming. We'll just have to see. But let's give God thanks for helping us through the ministry of God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for this time we could share together in your Word. And again, we are thankful for how rich your Word is. And Lord, it's sobering. It's something that tears at our hearts when we see the folly of human sin, when we see the inevitability of the judgments that sin brings. And yet, Lord, you are a God who deals with your people in such majestic um, um, grace, reluctant to bring that judgment, desirous of people to repent and turn back to you. And we're thankful that you are such a God who delights in mercy. You delight in justice. You delight in truth. And Lord, you are a worthy God to be magnified and worshipped and served. And so we're thankful for this Lord's Day. We're thankful for your goodness to us on another Lord's Day. And we pray your blessing would go with us. And all that is before us in the coming week, we as we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.